Welcome back, my friends, to the Hey Hey Recovery Interviews Podcast. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic, sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where AA members share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. My guest on today's show is Julie H., a woman whom I've known for many years through a variety of meetings we've attended. As is often the case in many AA friendships, my knowledge of Julie's story was limited to her brief shares and a little chit-chat after the meetings. For better or worse, I assume that her 38-plus years of sobriety were indicative of a consistent participation in the AA program. However, when I interviewed her, I was surprised to find out that, after initially getting sober, she had spent more than 22 of those 38 years only marginally involved in AA, or sometimes not at all. Her infrequent interaction with the program, plus self-will, were enough to keep her dry, so dryity, a friend of mine calls it, but the happiness and enrichment of contented sobriety through AA eluded her. Unhappy yet dry, Julie came to the higher-powered realization that she needed AA on a regular basis if she was ever going to be able to really enjoy her life. As a result, she re-engaged with the program through regular meeting attendance, sponsorship, book studies, and daily service work. Her renewed commitment to AA and the fellowship have helped Julie build a life of contented sobriety. Julie's story is especially important for anyone who has ever contemplated getting sober in AA, then disengaging after a period of time to just stay dry. The big book is chock full of stories of people who left the program and stayed dry. Their dryologues are tales of eventually getting drunk or living dry, desperate lives of discontentment and loneliness. But for many of them, like Julie, Returning to the rooms and the program restored the key to many doors of contentment in sobriety and enjoyment of everyday life. I'm beholden to Julie for bringing us her unique story. It's one that both active and non-active members need to hear and share with others. It shows what life can be like if we let up on AA's vigorous program of action. So please invite a friend to join you for the next hour as you listen to the vital words of my friend and AA sister, Julie H. I'm Julie, and I'm a recovering alcoholic. Thank you so much for doing this today, Julie. I'm so glad that you accepted my offer to appear on the AA Recovery Interviews podcast. I've listened to you for years in meetings and hadn't seen you until just recently. Uh, you've been sober a long time. Mm-hmm. What, what's your original sobriety day? Uh, it is February 11th, 1983. So you're coming up on 39 years? Miraculous. Does it seem like it's gone by really quickly? Yes. The minutes, the days, the minutes sometimes have been slow. But the fact that it's so many days is just amazing. Well, you know what's amazing, too, is that you and I just came out of a meeting that the topic was gratitude. Mm -hmm. And we're, as we record this, we're in Thanksgiving week. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciated what you said about your gratitude with regard to your family and when you were actively drinking, did you have a level of gratitude at that time or was it different than it is today? Never thought about it. Never thought about the word. Really? I knew the word, but I never thought about the word. Everything was up to me and I just wanted to be happy. So you were running your own show, so to speak. How did that work out for you? (laughs) (laughs) It just kept getting worse 
worse and worse. Mm. I uh, didn't realize that at all. But I, I thought I was smart. I thought mm-hmm. I was sophisticated at, at the time. I mm-hmm. thought I was uh, educated. Um, so, and I never heard of humility as a virtue. I didn't know about virtue. I didn't know virtues. I didn't know about humility. I had no idea. I was clueless. But mm. I'd been drinking since college mm. and mm. thought my life was normal. Yeah, isn't it something how, and that's how it was for me too, I started really drinking when I was in college. And it seemed like all of the things that I could have learned that would have been so important that I eventually learned as a member of AA, I didn't learn because I was drinking mm-hmm. and smoking pot during during college. Mm-hmm. What brought you to your first drink? Is there alcoholism in your family of origin? Is there anything that would have predicted that you would have a problem with alcohol? I didn't think so. I wouldn't have thought so. Uh, I thought my family was normal. My mother did complain about my dad's drinking often, uh, that he would drink before dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, then I remember sitting at the dinner table and hearing her berate him for drinking now after dinner. I could not see any reason to be complaining. She just berated him for that. She complained a lot. What was his response when she would complain about his drinking? Nothing. No response. He was still at the bar pouring himself in a, a drink. When you were a kid, did you see your dad drunk on occasion? Never. Never. Didn't know about it. Didn't know that he ever was drunk. But I was the oldest, so... Of how many? Three. Three. And I knew everything. So you were the one who was expected to already know the things that you didn't mm-hmm. know because you were the oldest. Mm-hmm. I heard you should have known better, Julie, a lot. And I didn't. How would, I thought I remember going, oh, how could I know better? And uh, I didn't, you know. Mm-hmm. I was, why didn't, I didn't, I was, I was absolutely thought I was clueless. Did anyone in your immediate family or extended family ever sit you down or in conversation engage with you about drinking or getting drunk or alcoholism or any of that? Never. Huh. A number of my guests on the podcast have come from that kind of upbringing. And it's mm-hmm. always amazed me that because I had a very difficult childhood in my family of origin and there's a tendency to want to think everybody's childhood was like Mm, that mm. how would you sum up your childhood in looking back i would say that i had to take care of my mother's anger Mm. because i was afraid she would leave the family and then what would happen to me and i got that somewhere way back when when i was little apparently Mm. just i just vaguely remember something about being a toddler, and my mom was crying in the kitchen. Mm. And my dad came in the door and said, oh, why are you crying? And she was, obviously, I didn't understand why, but, and he turned and looked at me and said, and I was the oldest, of course, and said, oh, but how can you be something like that? I remember this gesture. Mm -hmm. And she continued to cry. And I thought, Mm. oh, I don't, It's tough to know when you're a toddler. For some reason, that's what I remember. Yeah. And so I knew my mom was unhappy. So if she left and I wasn't enough 
to keep her there, or I wasn't enough to keep her happy, or, or whatever. Yeah, I understand. Is that akin to fear of abandonment? Yeah. But if she had abandoned the family and took you with her, would that have been okay with you, or you wanted the family to stay together with her in it? Oh, I didn't ever think that she would take me with, with her. Hmm. She was very unhappy. And she used to say a lot, I wish I'd never had children. Wish I'd just never had children. So she had two more children after me. It's not conscience, but it's it's in me that I was in I was in charge of trying to keep them from a disturbing mom. Yeah. How much older were you than your siblings? Just two and a half years older my, than my sister, and six years older than my brother. Okay, so they were looking to you for direction and how to feel about what was going on in the home. Do you remember mm-hmm. how you felt the very first time you contemplated? the statement, I wish I never had children. I don't th- know that I ever contemplated it until after she died. And I remember her being 80-something years old and saying that. And I got mad and didn't say anything to her. After she died, I, I just remember knowing, there was a knowing that came to me mm. that she didn't mean what she said. She just didn't know how to handle children. Mm-hmm. So she said that with thinking, I'm mm. sure. But uh, that gave me great, and does give me great peace. Yeah. Um, she just, because I did hear her once say the best time for motherhood for her was when the children were all little. Uh-huh. And okay. I was shocked when she said that because I thought it was. So the children were the bane of her existence. Well, and her husband's. And your dad. Mm-hmm. He didn't act the way she wanted him to act all the time. Were there things that you did from the time you were a kid to, let's say, in high school that you can look back on now and say, that's probably what led me to whatever behavior either preceded the alcohol or the alcohol itself? Uh, I was the oldest, mm-hmm. uh, so I was right. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever I said was right. Mm-hmm. I bossed my ch- my siblings around and uh, mm. I was mean to my sister mm. because she wouldn't do what was necessary in my opinion mm-hmm. to keep mom happy. <laughs> Gotta keep mother happy. Mm. And uh, But I probably never said that. I just tried to keep order so she wouldn't erupt into anger. Mm. And my brother, I enlisted him as my ally mm. uh, against my sister. I mean, I was not I was not a nice person. That's tough. But I knew how to act like I was a nice person. I remember a, a carpool mother saying one time about a dear friend who was getting out of the carpool car and walking back to her house. And she said, oh, that that little girl is the sweetest little girl. And I thought, well, I want to be the sweetest little girl. Mm. And I was, I didn't know what made her sweet and me not, or I, d- I assumed that meant I was not. And every now and then people would say, she's such a sweet girl about me. And I'd go, ma'am, I yeah. had no clue about who I was. Yeah, because you had no basis for what sweetness or goodness was at that point, did you? And my mother, I think, lashed out a lot at my sister. So I I thought that was okay. So I did that. So your, your sister really got the brunt. Yeah. Did you take that same bossy attitude Outside of the house, were you that way in your social interactions at school? In other words, did the behavior at home follow you into other settings, or was it just there? Just there. I was 
uh, quiet and shy in mm-hmm. school. And about the 10th grade, I think boys began to notice me, and mm-hmm. I liked that. I think children growing up without validation of who you are or what you're good at or mm-hmm. um, gifts you have, uh, in my case anyway, I've just loved any kind of validation I got. And um, I apparently cut my hair and looked better or something, and mm-hmm. you know, I was growing up, and, mm-hmm. and uh, boys started to notice me Mm. and I went to a very small school so I was part of a class and I was not part of the in group but I wasn't in the out group Mm. and uh, I was just in the middle somewhere in the middle Uh Mm uh-huh and uh, then but it was exciting all of this was exciting smoking you know I remember (laughs) so you're about 15 16 at this point huh Uh -huh. Mm -hmm. Mm uh-huh and smoking was fun Mm mm-hmm and uh, it was against the rules, although my mother smoked, and uh, but we never talked about anything, never talked about any of that. And then senior year, there was a girl's slumber party, and, and somebody had a lot of beer. Mm. And I'll never forget uh, having a few sips of that, and... This calm just came over me. I didn't mm-hmm. have to be. I did not have to be in charge. Mm-hmm. I did not have to be alert. This was fun. and uh, <laughs> But I didn't seek it out again. Uh, another time, uh, my senior year in high school, girls did something like that, and we just laughed about it and mm-hmm. how smart we were, but we were drunk. And... Uh, and then I went off to college, away from my parents. Yeah. Away. I felt so free and away from a boyfriend who was very, um, he hovered over me. Right. He was possessive. very jealous, very possessive. Right. Very mm. possessive. And mm. I just thought, <laughs> went to a girls' college and in Virginia, so it was out of state. And there were all these girls' colleges in an area and all these boys' colleges and universities. And so there were parties at all these colleges yeah. all the time and you didn't see the same people all the time you just wonderful anonymity what i know about boys and girls colleges are that the groups being kept apart from each other when they do get together things are even wilder than they might be at a co-ed school probably so yeah. because in a co-ed school you'd see people again yeah. it seemed to me and uh here you didn't always i remember somebody came over from the boys school and picked up a group of gals and we went over there for a party and we'd get off the bus and tell us and they'd be saying what's your name okay we put you with joe over here for the for a date and uh, so you know we'd be joe and julie with you had your dates assigned to you this was for the freshman year and and a freshman okay i can't remember the term now but it was a freshman gig right uh for the new boys in these fraternities and um and for us and so um and my date told me later, the end of the day, that so-and-so got the, the Dog of the Night Award for his date. And I thought, they, they talk about girls like that? Oh, how awful. I was very naive. I grew up in a very sheltered place, community, mm-hmm. and didn't know anything, wasn't exposed to anything. Did your relationship in high school give you any sense of knowing more what to do in college, or were you just still completely befuddled by it? Completely taken by surprise. Wow. My parents didn't help me, but I made the decision. They let me do that. 
-hmm. We didn't go to visit colleges back then. Mm -hmm. Just took a chance. I got into this one. I didn't think I was particularly smart until I got to college. And then we were taking courses for freshmen. And Mm -hmm. I thought, this is all what I had in high school. You know, this is easy. Well, that lasted for six months. And then... (laughs) Then it got hard. Then it got college level. They were making sure where people were when they got there. Mm -hmm. So when did you hit the transition then between feeling comfortable with college and starting to feel like you were into the groove of college life? Those fraternity parties. The the music, it was, this was in the 60s. Oh, yeah. And uh, there was great soul music Mm -hmm. was out. I Mm -hmm. loved soul music. Mm -hmm. I mean... Back then, you danced by yourself, yeah. so you didn't have to hold on to anybody's yeah. hand or uh-huh. anything. Although you danced yeah. with a boy, yeah. but you didn't have to hold on to it. Right. So um, it was just fun. I could have fun just dancing. But we were we drank like Animal House, the movie Animal House. Everybody drank like Beer. that. Beer and hard liquor as well. They mixed the hard liquor into some something we a punch. Yeah. yeah. But there was enough um, probably social parameters that people weren't sneaking off to bedrooms or anything, right, right. Uh-huh. and especially if you were freshmen and all yeah. that. And um, so it was, um, it was, it was just fun partying. Yeah. So we went out as much as we could. <laughs> Are there any times that you can recall from college where you got and remembered getting really, really drunk, and what were the consequences, or what was the outcome of that the next day? I was young and healthy, and because I danced a lot, perhaps, uh-huh. I, I wor- worked a lot of the yeah. alcohol out. Uh-huh. I don't remember any consequences, except my grades were not so good. I don't remember hangovers, but uh, this was a long time ago. But I do remember my sophomore year sitting in a booth, talking to a, a new date all afternoon, drinking beer, and just really enjoying sitting there and talking to him. Hmm. And um, but I couldn't remember a word that was said. Mm-hmm. I thought that was strange. Kind of like a blackout, huh? It was a blackout. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know about blackouts. Hmm. Yeah, when I went to the school, you couldn't drink within twenty miles of the school for the first quarter of the mm-hmm. year. After that, they loosened things up, and you could drink in town. So is it safe to say the balance of your college career was similar? Mm-hmm. Do you ever remember a time when things really got bad during that experience, or was that pretty much a a good time all the way through? Sometime in my sophomore year, somebody asked me out. I said, sure. So it was during the week, went out, uh, and this fellow, whoever he was, I mean, Mm -hmm. we all took blind dates back then. Yeah. Uh Um, He said, boy, you really drink a lot. And I thought, (laughs) that's funny he would say that. I thought, oh, I've got great capability, yeah. you know, that was, I was proud of that uh-huh. and I uh, thought I was just fine too. Um, mm-hmm. But in driving me back, I was late and you had to be in at a certain time. And, and when I got back, it turned out that I had thought I'd gotten away with something going out when I shouldn't have mm-hmm. gone out and, um, and I got caught. And mm-hmm. so there was some big, there were some consequences to that and I could have gotten kicked out it was an honors thing wow. it was you know if you broke the honor code then you got kicked out kicked out of the school mm-hmm. and so but that the honor code has went yeah, to the wayside sure, too of course. I don't remember anything that happened except my mother flew up 
to this small town mm -hmm. and uh, walked around the campus with me. Mm -hmm. I didn't take her to any classes, uh, but she was present on campus. And I think that's probably why I didn't get um, kicked out. Hmm. I don't know if she met with anybody. She never talked. We never talked about why she was up there. She and I didn't. I had called my father's office and said, Daddy, I'm in trouble. I don't know what's going to happen to me. Well, you know, they'd paid tuition for this. Yeah, of course. My dad was more of a soft touch for me. I, uh -huh. But my mom was tough. Mm -hmm. Sure. I don't know what she did, but I saw her for a couple of days. and Problem that, solved. Problem solved. So what did it look like when you when you got out of school? What was your trajectory after graduating from college? To do more of the same partying. I loved it. Mm. Uh, I had was not engaged. There were a lot of gals who were engaged mm -hmm. um, by the end of their senior year. And then a lot of gals had great jobs, mm -hmm. you know, in new places like New York oh, yeah. or whatever. Uh -huh. I had no clue what I wanted to do. I had majored in something that was very easy for me because I didn't want to do any work. I had not taken hard courses that were would have been of interest to me because it would have required more work. I, I should say this. My senior year... I remember calling each of my professors and saying, I uh, just wanted to know what grade um, you were going to give me. And they said, well, why? And because um, back then you had to graduate in four years. Right. And I was terrified I would not graduate. I didn't express that to anybody. Mm -hmm. But the, they all gave me decent good Decent grades. Passing grades, wow. Not even just passing. I just thought, well, I haven't done anything. And, and the woman in charge of all the gals said mm -hmm. to me one night when I was signing out to go out again, mm -hmm. said, um, Julie, what are you doing? You know, like, you're going out every night. Mm. This is not, I went out to drink. I didn't say that to myself, but I went out for fun and to do that. Mm -hmm. I thought I could do anything I wanted to do and all would be fine. Mm. My dad was not wealthy, but he he was comfortable, mm -hmm. and um, I just thought I'd be taken care of always. Mm. So you went you went from college back home at that point. Uh, I did, um, but not for long. Okay. Uh, I immediately moved to Atlanta, Georgia, for a job or just because. I, uh, one of my school friends was there and wanted a roommate, and I said, "Oh, I'll come over there." So I went over there and drove her, her VW while she was, she was off out of town with her business. Uh -huh. And uh, I drove her VW, which I did not know how to drive, uh -huh. uh, all over town looking for a job. Uh -huh. And I finally got a job with the airline and um, didn't want to be a flight attendant, which sounded so glamorous. I wanted to be, I thought I wanted to be something more under the radar, yeah. but the flight attendant. And the thing of it is, I thought, I have all these benefits. I can travel anywhere I want to go if oh, I'm yeah. working for the uh -huh. airlines. So, once again, to show my immaturity, uh -huh. I um, rarely on time for my job and didn't realize that you were supposed to be on time. I mean, I didn't, it didn't apply to me. The rules just don't apply to me. <laughs> yeah. And my supervisor, I could tell had a crush on me so I could get away with anything, I thought. I mean, I mean, he thought I was cute or something. Right. And he had a family and all this. But um, I just took advantage of that kind of stuff. Uh -huh. Also, yeah. 
I had a bank account um, in Houston, and I just overdrew it all the time. Hmm. But because the banker had come to Atlanta mm -hmm. um, sometime on a business trip with a cohort, a colleague, uh, I was, they called on me. They knew my dad, and they um, called on me and took me out to dinner. And um, this one guy was single, and he just thought I was great. I could tell. Mm -hmm. And he said, uh, and he never charged me for overdrafts. Mm. Well, then, what, eight years later, I, when I was getting married, uh, he heard I was getting married from my dad, and he called and said, you'll have to pay Oh, no. The amount you're overdrawn. And it was, oh, no. at the time, it was this huge amount. And I thought, well, why? <laughs> <laughs> he let you off the hook for eight years. Wow. Unbelievable. Wow. So I don't know how I did it, but I did pay it, pay it back. But I was resentful that he asked for it. Did he have designs on you at that point? I think so. Yeah. But, you know, he, yeah. was, a, he was a nice guy. And I was just flirty, but not... Yeah. I wasn't at all interested in him. Yeah. Are you drinking all the time at this point? Every night. Every night. Oh, yeah. So did you ever go into work drunk or drink during the day? Mm -hmm. So you were an evening drinker. Mm -hmm. How about the weekends? Well, sure. Yeah. If there were some uh, people around the pool, mm -hmm. sure, we might have a beer or something. But I was active, you know. Was your daily drinking with or without people? Did you have to have people around? It was party scene for me so yeah. it had to be with people until one day I something must have gone wrong and or gone or happened and my roommate was gone and mm -hmm. I said oh, I need a drink and I looked around the apartment and there was nothing to drink mm -hmm. except cooking sherry mm -hmm. and I remember thinking this is probably not a good idea mm -hmm. but I drank that cooking sherry Mm. And I felt fine, mm. you know, just fine. Mm. Mm. So maybe it wasn't a, so maybe it was more gradual, but by then I was 24, 25. You're drinking on a daily basis after you get home from work. Mm. Did you drink till you went to sleep or pass out or? No. So it wasn't over an abundance every evening of drinking, was there? There was, uh -huh. but it was not falling into the soup kind of drunkenness or stumbling. It okay. was uh, just having a good time. Wow. So you're one of those rare people that was able to get to the point of feeling just pretty good and just leaving it at no, that? No, no, no. I kept going. I, there was no, there was no way. I had, I'd look back and I had no stop. There was no stop. Yeah. Were you a blackout drinker when you drank, or did you remember next day everything that went on the night before? I was remembering, by that point, I was remembering things. It really took a turn for the worst in my later 20s and 30s. What happened then? I moved back to Houston probably in my mid-20s. It wasn't mm -hmm. my mid-20s. And I was on my way. Actually, I didn't move. I was just stopping over because I decided I was going to see another friend out in California, and mm -hmm. I was going to move out there and get a job. And um, I met some boys here, and Houston was a different town, and it mm -hmm. was fun. And mm -hmm. I moved in somewhere else, not my parents, and um, that was fun. Met a lot more people, mm -hmm. and we had big parties. They were always really fun. Mm -hmm. And so meanwhile, there were all these men in and out of my life, and um, 
I was having a, a wonderful time, I thought, and uh, going nowhere. More dates and more people and different jobs, all kinds of different jobs, not going anywhere. And then met somebody, and he was actually somebody from my school, uh, my high school. So, But he'd only been there a year mm, when mm-hmm. we graduated, and so I didn't know him very well. Mm-hmm. But I fell in love with him, and... I did notice it was easy to drink with him. I didn't have to hold back. So he fell into your routine pretty much? That's all we did was drink. Was yeah. It, huh? Huh. We went hunting and I didn't I wasn't really that adept at, at that. I'd been familiar with it, but mm-hmm. I wasn't. And I remember uh, bird hunting and um, somebody some part of the group we were with down another end of the field and they said hey we're getting all your shot over here <laughs> i'd been drinking and i just i thought your aim wasn't so good <laughs> yeah why was i shooting in that direction well yeah. that's where the birds were why wouldn't i shoot over there <laughs> oh and they finally moved because i couldn't i didn't get it mm-hmm. so it was really getting bad then and i was saying i can drive let me drive so i familiar with Houston so mm-hmm. I drove I drove everywhere and um, I did a lot of driving drunk oh, drunk yeah and then and it got downhill after I married how long were you married when things started to oh, go on the decline it was bad from the day because I just had no there were no there were no holes barred I just drank but it was always at the end of the day is it safe to say that drinking informed your decision-making at that point? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And those aren't very good decisions. I've, I've realized that in my own sobriety, that there were some key life decisions that I made at a time where I was impaired. And just like you, I just wanted to get out of school so I could party. I wanted to do what I wanted to do while my friends were going on to law school and while they were going on to these great careers. All I said was, I just want the freedom to be able to to drink and smoke pot whenever I want, wherever I want. And those kind of decisions follow you for a long time after that. It sounds like you experienced some of those yourself. I did. I don't know if I'm communicating that, but yeah, that was exactly right. Hmm. And I remember I wanted to get married. Uh, I was 30 when I got married. Um, And after a couple of years, you know, there was talk about children and I suddenly wasn't sure I wanted to have any. Of course, my mom, I'd grown up oh, yeah, with that. Sure. But I, I didn't stand up for myself. I didn't know what I stood up for. I didn't stand up for anything. Then I found I couldn't have children. It's just amazing. God was there, though, the whole time, and he, he saved me from all kinds of terrible things that could have happened to me. I mean, I can just think of them. Within the marriage? No, um, before the marriage. Before the marriage. When I was single. So there were consequences. I mean, there were possible very serious consequences of my drinking in college, I guess, and then single on my own mm. uh, in Atlanta, and then coming back to Houston. There were there were times where I was I was kept alive and kept out of harm's way. We'll be right back. 
My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my Big Book podcast, the complete, unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on BigBookPodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition Big Book wearing headphones. And we're back. So you were in some pretty sketchy situations Sometimes. before you got married, and then you get married, and you're marrying somebody who becomes your drinking buddy at that point? Oh, yeah. We, we love to drink, yeah. Huh. And we st- I stopped smoking so I could be a, a healthy mom, but then <laughs> uh, I kept on drinking, and then uh, it was, couldn't have children, couldn't have children. Well, maybe we would adopt. I wasn't thinking. Yeah. I drank. I drank uh-huh. heavily yeah. every night. And suddenly, you know, I had been married a couple of years, and I was, uh, I wasn't, I was wondering why I wasn't happier. Mm-hmm. And uh, and somebody came along and and kept talking about Jesus, and I thought, oh, she's a Jesus fanatic. And um, but uh, but I wanted her over for dinner a lot, mm-hmm. so she'd come over for dinner, and we'd drink wine, mm-hmm. and eventually I would, I'd ask her some questions. But, um, and one day she said, you know something about how much Jesus loved her. And I, and I thought, I want to be loved like that. <laughs> yeah. And, um. And it wasn't coming from the marriage. No, but there, I couldn't have said what was, why it wasn't. Yeah, sure. But I wasn't, I was, and she one day came over to my house to see our new puppy and all this. And, and she said, Julie, you have it all. Handsome husband who's got a job and a house and a puppy. And and I almost burst into tears. And I mm. didn't know why. And um, But I didn't let her see that. And I didn't do it. And, and I was just, I guess, having a mental breakdown. Mm-hmm. But I, I remember saying, I said a prayer one afternoon when I was probably still hung over and mm-hmm. um, and just said, God, I don't seem to be making myself happy. You know, mm. would you do it? So I hadn't been, I wasn't a, I wasn't a person who went to church. I wasn't, um, but on occasion there'd be a reminder that there was a God maybe, and maybe I ought to pay attention. Mm. And I'd go, oh, why? Yeah. And when I got married, somebody gave us a Bible with our name on it. I said, why do people try to put God mm. in everything? Yeah. And so, you know, put that back in the box somewhere. So there I was, I guess, in a sense, turning my life over to a, to a God I did not know. And then, um, was that a turning point for you then with, with regard to your drinking or you, you just wanted God's help? Oh, sure. I wasn't concerned about the alcohol. I was absolutely unaware Mm. of my drinking, mm-hmm. except uh, the hangovers now in my early 30s were getting really bad. Mm. Were they affecting your work life and uh, your social life? Well, I'd get to work. They did affect my social life in that after I'd had two little baby boys, I began to notice the drinking. Mm. And it was because I was suddenly, although married to a 
fine man I loved, and who was mm. the daddy of these two little boys, I suddenly was really attracted to two people, mm. two men. And I thought, that's, that's not something I can do. Mm-hmm. For some reason, that there was a fence there. I could not do adultery. And the thing of it is, mm. I knew that was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I knew, I think the reason I knew was I got this um, out of nowhere, I remember sitting with two little, my two little <laughs> tiny boys somewhere, maybe in the doctor's office or something, and having this thought come through my mind, maybe alcohol has something to do with your problems. Because I knew, I felt the shame and the guilt even of this attraction to these other people, these men. Maybe some fear that it might overtake you? It would. It mm-hmm. would. And I, um, I, I knew that. So I don't know where the knowing came from. Mm. I knew it was going to happen, and it was because of alcohol. So was that the first time you actually attached your use of alcohol to some kind of behavior that you didn't want to engage in, but you had no control as I, long as alcohol was in the picture? Yeah, but I didn't know that. Yeah. It was a strange thought. Think of all That's kind of a God thing, too, right? That's definitely a God thing, in my opinion now, mm. looking mm-hmm. back. Yeah. And so, um, and, and I knew I couldn't not drink. Mm. At the same time of recognizing that, I couldn't, I knew I could not, not drink. And here you were raising from babies to toddlers and you're still, were you drinking the entire time? The whole time. I did not know, I did not know I was not supposed to drink Mm. while I was pregnant. So Mm -hmm. I drank while I was pregnant. For some reason, I didn't hear that. The boys turned out okay? Well, yeah, as far as I know. Hmm. But it was right after that, that um, a friend who was a Christian friend of mine said, you want to go to church with me? And I said, sure, I'll leave the two little babies with my husband and, mm-hmm. and I'll go to church with you. And we went to this church um, and it was in a double wide trailer. Mm, well, mm-hmm. that was new to me. Mm-hmm. Anyway, people were real friendly and nice. And um, it was kind of nice, you know, it was nice to be there and not to be mm-hmm. loaded down with little ones. And um, and the preacher started talking. Mm-hmm. And, and about five minutes into his sermon, he said, you know, I need to change what I'm talking about. Somebody here needs to hear about alcohol and how dangerous alcohol is Hmm. and I heard that but it didn't go that's for me I mean (laughs) I did not think that but but I just listened to him and he said did you know that he said I'm going to sound like a Baptist preacher he said alcohol will kill your life it will kill your health it will kill your job it will kill your relationships it will kill your marriage it Mm -hmm. will kill, kill your children it will mm-hmm. you know it will kill I mean it went on and on and on mm. and and I went home and didn't think anything of it and that night about five I was at my wits in with these little boys and um, and so I reached for my big German wine glass mm-hmm. because I didn't have to refill it very oh, often yeah. <laughs> and um, I reached for that and mm-hmm. and I remembered the sermon and 
I said, I just said to myself, God, if you want me to quit drinking, you'll have to help me because I can't do it. Just for that second, I thought, well, I'll just put the glass back in the cabinet. I'll do it later. And I'll wait a minute. And so the um, every time I thought about it that night, bathing the babies and putting them in bed and, you know, all that. And um, every time I thought about it, it's time to do it. I think, oh, I've got to I'll wait a minute. I'll just wait a minute. I had never, ever done that. Hmm. So after you asked God for help, you got the thought that repeated itself over the course of that evening of, I'll just wait a minute. I'll wait a minute. Putting it off and putting it just off. Just putting it off. I wasn't, I wasn't planning on not drinking. I just was putting it off right then. Sounds like a moment of clarity to me. That night, though, I was going to bed, and I did go. I haven't had a single thing to drink. wonder how long this will last. It's what I said to myself. Didn't tell my husband. Didn't think about it. Hmm. Right after that, we put a contract on a house, mm-hmm. and, uh, and suddenly I found myself pregnant again. Mm-hmm. I had all these things to distract me, and I didn't drink. And I didn't think about drinking. And that was back in about February of 83. Because when I got to a good AA meeting eventually Uh down the way, somebody in there said, so what's your sobriety date? And I said, well, you know, I just really don't remember. You know, it was kind of (laughs) like six weeks before I found out I was pregnant with my third child. And he said, pick a date. And I said, oh, okay. And, um... You worked out the math on that one. Huh? Yeah. And so that's why it's February 11th, mm-hmm. 1983. But the, um, so I lived for six years with mm-hmm. three little children and um, a new house and um, on my own and things were really getting out of my control now. The little ones were, you know, they were, and I couldn't, and the house was bigger and I was always running upstairs to, to, uh, check on the baby and um Mm -hmm. and i was beginning to notice i needed help from my husband and he was busy working Mm -hmm. all the time Mm -hmm. and um so i got mad and i got madder and madder Mm -hmm. i did not know how to live life Mm -hmm. without my comfort but i didn't remember that that was my comfort it was it was like it was off the table i was not yeah i was not interested in alcohol Nobody had noticed that I'd stopped drinking. Seventeen months after I stopped, we were out to dinner, and um, I'd been nursing a baby, right. so of uh-huh. course I had reasons like that. And uh, my husband said, "Oh, she, oh, she doesn't drink." And I thought, "Oh, he noticed." I mean, huh. you know, I, we, I never told him, I never talked to him, or anything. Yeah. So you were dry this whole time. Oh, no, that's not all. That's not all. Okay. I, I was want... dry for six years. Six years. And I didn't... Without re- AA at all. No AA. Mm-hmm. Didn't know anything about it. Mm-hmm. And so, um, one day, I was so mad. Mm-hmm. Somebody had sent, said I was complaining all the time about my life. Mm-hmm. sounded like my mom, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And um, and someone said, was there alcohol? In, is there a problem with alcohol? And I said, well, I don't drink anymore, but... But, you know, everybody around me does. My husband, my parents, mm-hmm. you know. But nobody was falling into the soup. Mm-hmm. They were all functioning. Yeah. But I was mad as hell they weren't doing what I wanted them to do. So somebody said, you ought to go to Al-Anon. I'll take you there. So I went to Al-Anon, and I thought, well, you know, this is helpful, but my husband's got to change. My parents have got to change. All uh-huh. this. 
And then one day I was taking a little boy to a Cub Scout meeting, and I thought, this church has lots of 12-step meetings. I'm going to find any 12-step meeting and stay here while he's in Cub Scouts. And so I walked in. The first door I opened, and this meeting was already going. It was a packed room. There was smoke everywhere. Mm. It was already going. They were talking about the steps, so I knew it was a step meeting. I mean, I knew it was a 12-step meeting. And uh, so I found the one chair left and sat in it and uh, listened. The whole, the whole meeting, my face, I felt, was really red from embarrassment mm. because they were talking about me, mm-hmm. how I thought, mm-hmm. and what I did, and my thinking. They knew they knew what I, I thought, how do they know I'm here? <laughs> and I had to get up and leave because it was time to pick up that little Cub Scout. Yeah. And so I got up and left and as I, before the meeting was over. And as I left, I asked the man sitting next to the door, so what kind of 12-step meeting was this? And he said, Alcoholics Anonymous. And I walked out of there thinking, that was all about me. I couldn't be an alcoholic. I haven't had a drink in six years. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was shocked, and in overwhelm. Mm-hmm. Everybody else was an alcoholic, but I wasn't yeah, because I yeah. didn't drink. God had it was a God thing because I'd been drinking for fifteen, sixteen years. Yeah, absolutely. Every night and yeah. heavily, heavily, mm-hmm. and bad hangovers there at the end, not at not at the beginning. But then. Um, so I started coming back to that meeting, mm. and um, they were. It was a step step study, and mm-hmm. it was every every week they were reading and talking about a step, and it was it was me. Each time. Each time I knew I knew I was an alcoholic, uh, although I wouldn't have said it. I would have said, "No, no, I'm not under the bridge. Alcoholics are little old men who live under a bridge." And here were all these women. And, in here, and I thought, well, what are they doing in here? Were you and still going to Al-Anon at the time? I, I think I probably went because I was going during the day, and I could go during the day. Okay, so you were going to Al-Anon during the day and AA at night? At AA meeting, step study at night. It was that Tuesday night one. Do you remember the first time you got called on that you said your name and that you were an alcoholic? I thought I drank too much, which is different than being an alcoholic. So you'd say your name and I no. drink too much or what, no, what would no, you say? No, I don't know that they called on me. Huh. It was a huge meeting. And oh. I think they, I had, didn't feel like I had enough money. Somebody gave me a big book. Yeah. I read the big book. I read all those stories in the back because I was going to find the, the thread between all these yeah. stories. I couldn't find the thread. So I was in that meeting and it eventually had some problems. And so they split up and... I stayed with that meeting, and I knew I was alcoholic, but I didn't, no women took me under their wings. Mm -hmm. It was, I don't know why, maybe because I I got there late, because I had to, just, I was, my schedule, I brought, I brought somebody to this Cub Scout meeting, but then that changed, you know, Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, I was probably not in there very much. Were you aware of the concept of sponsorship by that point, or... I knew, I, I thought at the time that certainly my uh, sponsor and I had done, I'd done some step work in Al-Anon, in Al-Anon. so okay. I thought, well, I'm, I'm fine, I've done some step work there. Okay. But there was a point where it came 
to me that I should do the steps, and mm-hmm. I thought, well, I don't know any women here, and but um, I've done this fourth step, and it's all about alcohol, and I don't want to talk about it to my Al-Anon sponsor. Mm. So I looked around and found a woman who was um, who laughed a lot, mm-hmm. and I liked her joy, and I thought I'll ask her. Mm. Alice was her name. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever knew Alice. I uh, don't know her last name. Mm-hmm. Never did. But she became my temporary sponsor. But she was a busy nurse, and uh, it was not. Um, and I was busy with three little children and no help. And mm. I mean, some people have a lot of help. I didn't have any help, and so I was cooking and cleaning. And so it was a while until you got yourself an AA sponsor. It was. Uh, I got. Uh, in fact, I was. My kids grew up. I stopped going to uh, meetings, and I was so mad again. I thought I've got to find meetings to go to, and I found uh, that there was a seven a.m. meeting I could go to mm-hmm. on Saturdays. Mm-hmm. So I did that, and after a while, and what I heard was life changing, and this thought went through my brain. Not for me, and it was, this is life or death for you. Mm-hmm. And I went, it is life or death for me, that's for sure. So I was afraid to tell my husband by this time. I was afraid to, um, because I was afraid he was going to divorce me. Mm. So I was living in all this fear that was all inside my head. Mm. And fear for the children, and where were they going to go to school, and what if they this, and what about that. And no recovery. No, I mean, no Nothing to sure. help me. Mm-hmm. I, oh, I say all that time though. I was going to Bible study at church, so you know, maybe, maybe God helped me through that. Well, so, how many years were you doing that between when you first went to AA and the kids got older, and you were? Uh, was there a hiatus between your first AA Al-Anon meetings and picking it up again down the line? Yeah, there was. How long a period was that? But I would, uh, but I would go, uh, I would go to various and sundry meetings I could find on occasion. Okay, so you and stayed connected. Any meeting I could get to I get would, it. when I was desperate. Kind of recharge you for the time being. Because I would hear of somebody who had 12 years or 15 years and had just gone out, and I'd had 12 years of not having a drink. I thought I thought it was enough. Yeah. I'm not drinking. Uh-huh. So why don't these people do what they're supposed to do? Mm-hmm. So it wasn't until I found that and had been in that 7 a.m. Saturday meeting that and I was in there <laughs> complaining about everything, and that's where the man said, pick a date. And I went, well, who are you to tell me? And, uh, and uh, so, but a woman came up to me after the meeting and looked me in the eye. She said, you need to do an alphabetical gratitude list. And I thought, who the hell does she think she is? <laughs> And that afternoon, that reminder came to me that she had said that, and there was nobody around. Hmm. And I thought, well, maybe I'll try that. And I did do an alphabetical gratitude list, and it absolutely, my attitude changed 180 degrees. You know how it says in the big book, we cease fighting anything and everything? Mm -hmm. I had been fighting, I was fighting everything. I had to have my way. I had to have my way. I was right. And um, so, how long were you dry when when she had that finger pointing in at you? I, I oh, I bet 
I bet, 22 years or 21 mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. But I had come on occasion to yeah, meetings. Yeah. Uh-huh. I had quit Al-Anon. I was uh, doing Bible study, so, you know, and nobody seemed to understand there if I said, mentioned anything about drinking too much. Nobody picked up on that or asked me about that. So I was kind of stumbling along. I was afraid of everything. Afraid my husband would leave us, leave me, and Mm. I'd be left with three children. Because he'd lost a drinking buddy. But did I think about that? No. Mm -mm. And he was busy working, and so uh, I was in charge of everything, and I couldn't manage anything. And it was, um, I had to go to. I decided to go to um, Debtors Anonymous because we had big arguments about the way I spent money. Mm-hmm. And gosh, they were talking about me in there too, <laughs> the way I thought. So I can't get away from it, can yeah, you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So God seems to want me to be in twelve-step programs. I guess and, so. Um, yeah. And uh, they, like it says in the Big Book, it's a design for living. Yeah. And I, I need that. I need that. Uh-huh. Um, and it's kind of like being practical about spiritual things. And um, So, talk about ease and comfort. I get that from being in the program, from working the steps. Yes, absolutely. And, um, and not from a drink. And yeah. not from even, and I just don't think about the drink. But that was a God thing, to take that desire away. Well, to take the desire away and to leave you with being dry but not being sober. Sobriety is about so much more than not drinking. But the things that you're talking about, the fear, you know, those anxious feelings, uh, not, of not being able to control things. Mm-hmm. So this is all coming to a head at, what, 22 years dry? Probably, because I remember somebody from Al-Anon was in this AA meeting Uh for my 22nd birthday, which I knew I didn't sound like I knew anything Mm -hmm. about AA. But she said something nice about me, and she was one of the only people who knew me in that big meeting. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was so grateful for that, Mm. because I did not talk like I knew anything Mm. about 12 steps. Because you weren't working the program at no. that point. Yeah, yeah. But she still said something nice. You were still able to stay sober. You're in AA. Who knows when someone says, I'm sober and I'm in AA, nobody bothers to say, I, I, have you worked the steps? Have you done this? Have you done that? The assumption of somebody who's been sober or dry 22 years is, wow, she must just know the big book inside <laughs> out and have a dozen sponsees. And, right. But that wasn't true for you. Right. Not at all. How do you feel about that? I'm, I, I'm guessing there were times when people made that assumption in your presence. How did you feel when people around you were thinking that you were so engaged when you actually weren't? I just thought maybe they don't see that. You know, I just... So you did a good job kind of hiding that Well, fact. yeah. Hmm. I, I don't know if I did a good job hiding it. I just... Um, Doesn't sound all that similar to when you were in school as a kid, though. You were taking, uh, you, you had a different behavior when you were around people than you did back at home. Mm-hmm. I get it. So 22 years, is that the jumping off point into AA as a design for living for you? What did that look like? I got a sponsor. Oh, great. I asked somebody to sponsor me. Mm-hmm. And she said yes. 
And so uh, we started on the steps. We discussed them. We uh, were both going to meetings, um, that uh, the same meetings where a step a week was being done. Uh, mm. It was helpful for me, and mm. I could talk to her about those things, about the steps, about that particular step. It still, it took me a while to talk to her about, um, to talk honestly, because I think all that time I had not been honest with myself. Yeah. And so... Um, well, especially if you're sitting in an AA meeting, trying to make people around you think that you're engaged when you're really not. Mm -hmm. That's not necessarily an outward deception, but it still feels like that inside, yeah. doesn't it? Right. Yeah, I get right. it. Yeah. I also, though, it became became very clear to me that I I had options and um, and I better be very careful or I would lose this. Mm. So somehow, somehow or other, I knew I was on scary ground. Mm -hmm. So um, this sponsor and I met every week. We saw each other at meetings. Talking to other people, I learned so much, mm. so much. Like, what's that old German saying? Too soon, old, and too late, smart. <laughs> you know, something like that. So I've, I've dug in as a lot to the books, um, to the literature, because the literature just really speaks to me about me. In a way that it hadn't before, I'm guessing. No, it did back then, but it I did. thought... When I, but I thought I would never forget it because it was so important yeah. and so on target for me. And I wouldn't forget that, but I do forget that. Well, it probably has a different impact on you when you're engaged in the program and doing the oh, things yeah. that you need to be doing. Yeah, exactly. They wow. say in here, though, we have quick forgetters, and I, I have a quick forgetter. Yeah. And that's uh, one of the reasons I need to come back and be reminded um, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I know that. Yeah. But I needed to be reminded. Well, especially when people say, you know, that person has a lot of years but not enough days. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that, I didn't even get that for the longest time. And then I got it. And I went, oh, wow. So in looking back from where you are right now to that 22 years ago, you get the sponsor, you start working the steps, you do the work that's necessary to create a design or let God create a design for your life at this point. What have the past number of years been like? Was there a, a turning point within that where you felt you'd turned from being just a dry, now sober alcoholic to being a woman whose life was really fully engaged with the program? Yes, when uh, people started asking me to um, sponsor them. Hmm. And so... Uh, when did that happen? I can't recall, but I remember thinking, this is not... I can't do that. <laughs> did you ask your sponsor about it? Yeah. And she... Uh, whatever whatever she said, my life was so busy. Right. See, my life was so busy with these kiddos. They're still, you know, and in and out and yeah. doing all this. And um, so my life was so busy... I have I have that excuse. So I, some stayed sober for a while, but moved on. Mm -hmm. uh, some didn't. Some just disappeared, 
I mean, I know that happens to everybody. Sure. Um, but boy, now I get such joy, and I know the books better, and I go through the books with them, mm-hmm. and um, and I listen to them. And you're and a real service to them, I'm sure. I feel good doing it. Yeah, I'll bet. It's good. It's good for me. That's a good feeling. So, yeah. That's a really good feeling. Yeah. Have you had the opportunity to engage with some of the women that they end up sponsoring and maybe even further mm-hmm. on down the line? Mm-hmm. What's that been like for you? Oh, fun. Oh, you're my grand sponsor. <laughs> you know? And so it's good. That's as far as I would say. Yeah. yeah. But uh, do they call me? No, not really. Yeah. And I found um, times where I've thought, oh, and my first sponsor said she only took two or three people at a time. And, um, and I have found it just depends on the sponsees, yeah. you know, when they call and how much time it takes. But it always seems to work out. And on occasion, I've thought, oh, this is getting a little crowded. Maybe, um, maybe I need to drop somebody. But... I haven't, yeah. and I haven't needed to, and it's been, uh, it's been good, good for me. It's been really good for me. I'll bet. So God doesn't give us more than we can handle. He also doesn't give us more sponsees than we can sponsor. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds to me like you've got a relatively content, sober life today. Is that a fair statement? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do. I have. I have relationships with my three children mm-hmm. um, uh, um, I think they might have uh, resented the fact that I went off sometimes at night for Al-Anon meetings oh, yeah. way back when but yeah. uh, but um, I've also heard mom you need a meeting <laughs> <laughs> and um, That's great. and I've also heard um, mom how can you trust what people say in those meetings be- because there's an AA meeting right across the street from my daughter's place in New York. Uh-huh. And uh, and I come back from there happy as a client. Uh-huh. I am. And she said, but they, they're not licensed, Mom. How, do, <laughs> how can they help you? <laughs> and so, she thinks it's a room full of therapists, doesn't she? Or, uh, yeah, I think so. <laughs> and, uh, and, they're, and they were drunks. <laughs> yeah. Well, in a way, they actually are, because what we... we provide to each other is about as therapeutic as any counseling I've ever been in. In fact, more so because I've had PhD psychologists years and years ago before I stopped drinking. He never confronted me on drinking. I tell him about getting drunk, doing this and that, all the stuff that was associated with it. He never ever brought up the idea of stopping drinking, (laughs) but he always at the end said, keep coming back. This is working. And bring a check. You know? Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> so, well, I didn't. I didn't have the money to uh, to go to therapists, but I would go on occasion. And inevitably, I just found that I could say anything I wanted to, and they maybe weren't thinking. And uh, I, of course, never told them the truth. Well, that's what's beautiful about AA is that we can go in there, we can speak our truth without fear of judgment from others because they're all sitting there with the same kind of fear we are about being judged. So nobody, we try not to judge each other. I get that. Yeah. And also something that I've, I've heard that really was comforting to me is what I say is the best I can say what's going on with me right now. Right now. But in an hour, in an hour, I, I may not feel exactly the same. Sure. About sure. this or about that. Yeah. So, it's and I 
recognize that, but I know that out in the world, I would have thought I have to have this opinion for the rest of my life. I mean, that's what I thought back then. But my children speak to me, which is good because a a dry drunk is not a happy mom to have. And so um, I've I've made amends to them, and they don't really, they don't remember when Hmm. I was drinking. They don't know. But I made amends to them for talking badly about their dad. But you made amends for your own sobriety. And the fact that you did it is instructive for them. Even if things haven't been all that fractured, there's a lot of good healing that goes on oh, yes. in that environment, isn't mm-hmm. there? And I've had to say to one child, I finally said, you know, I'm never going to mention this again. But yeah. if you find that alcohol is a problem for you, AA has got the solution. I yeah. did the same thing you did. You know, I'm going to tell you, if you ever need help, I'm here for you. If any of your friends ever need help, I'm here for them. The program has the solution. If I can help walk you in or hold your hand along the way, I'll do that. But but I get that. I'm glad everybody's still here. And I'm glad somebody was here when I first came. And I'm glad people let me come uh, in, even though I was so messed up and unhinged. Yeah, I With, get that. You know, you take away the alcohol. If that's been your comfort for for a number of years, and you take that away, yeah, you got to have something else. And what is there? Yeah. Left to my own devices, I came up with nothing. This is the design for living for me. Yeah. And, and my God seems to want me to be in 12-step programs, and, and AA particularly. Yeah, that's a beautiful sentiment to end with, Julie. And... I want to thank you so much for doing this, mm-hmm. and I think it's going to it, those people who do l- listen will be impacted by it. I believe so because your story is unique in its own way, and I want to thank you for that, and tell you that I love you as an AA sister, and that doing this today has just meant the world to me. Thank you. Thanks so thank much. You. Well, my friends, that's it for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. Thanks to Julie H. for sharing her story, and thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you help me spread the word by sharing it with your fellow AAs? As the number of listeners grows, this podcast will be of help to more and more people. Of course, you can subscribe to all of the interviews on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google, Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcasts. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. And if you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.